Dear Lord, we come before you acknowledging the fact of our need for you, God, that you might open the eyes of our understanding this morning to reveal yourself to us. We have prayed to you already. Show us Christ. Let us behold Jesus. Let us together experience your preached word. If there is anyone who is here this morning who has yet to put their faith in you, we ask that the miracle of salvation would come to them today. That, Lord, if it be your will, that you would quicken some, if not all, who are unsaved to eternal life. Let them behold you. Let us be attentive to your word. Let me read your word and teach your word and exhort from your word in a way that is pleasing to you. Lord, above all things, thank you, Jesus for dying on a cross for us and paving the way for us to be saved. We lay this hour at your feet and we ask that you would be pleased with it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, a couple of months ago, I was in the parking lot of Sam's Club with my um, boy, Caleb, uh, and a Muslim man approached us, and he had Islamic literature in his hand. He wanted to talk to us, and in particular to me, about Islam. Our conversation began friendly enough but when he verbally blasphemed Jesus by declaring that he was nothing more than a prophet, at that moment there was a fire that was burning in my bosom and I felt provoked in my spirit. My emotions were stirred and I felt myself immediately borne along by the spirit as I proclaimed Christ with a fluidity that was not my own. I found myself in the middle of the parking lot proclaiming Christ with a passion that did not go unnoticed. Folks passing by slowed down to listen to what it is that I was saying, and without question, some of them heard Christ being proclaimed. Well, I share this not to draw attention to anything good that I did, but to illustrate my own shame. It was the Muslim who took initiative 
He approached me. He was the one making observations and coming to me in order to share with me something that he firmly believed. Of all people, of all people, we who embrace the gospel, we should be the ones provoked, provoked by and confronting the idolatry that surrounds us. And the message this morning is entitled Responding to Idolatry. We are framing the message around three observations regarding Paul's response to idolatry that should instruct and motivate us in our personal evangelism. If you are looking for a roadmap, here it is. Paul's observation of idolatry, Paul's grief, or you might even say anger over idolatry, and then Paul's confrontation of idolatry. Observation, grief, anger, confrontation. Uh, We will see how Paul's thoughts and feelings give rise to his actions in our message this morning. Well, let us consider observation number one, Paul's observation of idolatry. Paul's observation of idolatry. We are in Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. Those of you who got the email, you probably read the passage already. If you didn't, we're going to be reading through it now. But in Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, we read now. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. I want you to recall recent events leading to the now in this verse. This is Paul's second mission trip. As we saw in my last sermon, nothing of that first missionary trip initially went according to plan, according to Paul's plan. His original plan was for him and Barnabas to revisit all of the churches uh, that they planted on their first missionary trip. But Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement, you will recall, their disagreement regarding whether or not to take John Mark. And as a result, Barnabas left Paul and took off with John Mark to Cyprus. And Paul then chose Silas and he and Silas together head northward. Paul is introduced to Timothy at Lystra and he convinces the promising young man to get circumcised, ouch, and join him on the mission trip. It takes considerable commitment for a young man to commit to the cutting for the cause of Christ. I do not want that to go unchecked, unnoticed. So Paul, along with Silas, and now Timothy, they move on. And they experience a closed door in their attempt to head west. They experience another closed door in their attempt to go north. And they end up in Troas where they meet Luke for the first time. 
Luke, the beloved physician, the writer of the book of Acts. Uh, So they meet this Dr. Luke. And around the same time, Paul receives the Macedonian call, the call to go into Macedonia, to go into Europe, if you will. And the missionary team will storm into Europe. They arrive eventually in Philippi. The Lord opens the heart of Lydia, you will recall, to the things spoken by Paul. And she comes to faith in Christ. Her entire household comes to faith in Christ. And she convinces Paul and his team to minister out of her home. While in Philippi, you will recall that Paul exercises a demon-possessed slave girl. As a result, he and Silas are beaten. They are beaten with rods, struck with many blows, and they are thrown into the inner prison. Persecution. So they are in prison. They are praying and singing to the Lord during the midnight hour, and their shackles are loosened, and the prison doors are opened. But another door opens before them as well. A door of opportunity for them to share the gospel presents itself as Paul yells out to the suicidal jailer not to kill himself. The jailer asks the million dollar question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul proclaims Christ to him. The jailer embraces Christ as does his entire household. And Paul and Silas will return to the brethren in Lydia's home where the Philippian church is planted, has been planted. And continuing on then, that is where we left off in my last sermon. Continuing on, Luke stays in Philippi, but Paul, Silas and Timothy set out for Thessalonica. They set out for Thessalonica. Paul proclaims Christ in the synagogue. A few believe, but then many Jews saw fit to hassle Paul. Luke tells us that Paul and Silas were sent away from Thessalonica. Uh, They are sent away by night to Berea. Presumably, Timothy was with them. Luke does not specify that. Uh, Clearly, all three do end up ministering in Berea ministering the word there. Now, Luke describes the Bereans, the Bereans as being uh, noble minded. They were more noble minded than the Thessalonians. And, and, And why were they noble minded? Why is it, Luke, that you describe them in this way? And he gives us the answer when he says, um, that they received the preached word with enthusiasm. They were eager for the preached word, but then they went to the written word in order to be sure that the preached word was in alignment with the written word. And that is what what made them noble minded believers. Uh, But the Jews of Thessalonica, they hear that Paul is preaching in Berea. They come down in order to harass him some more. You get a sense of the pattern here, the harassment, the persecution. And so Paul suffers in Philippi. 
Thessalonica, Berea. Luke tells us that the Berean brethren sent Paul to Athens. Meanwhile, Silas and Timothy stay behind. I want to draw your attention to the fact that Paul arrives in Athens alone. Paul arrives in Athens alone. Presumably, Silas and Timothy eventually arrive in Athens only to be dispatched again. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 2.17 through 3.5, there Paul describes to the Thessalonians his intense burden for them. And he recalls in 1 Thessalonians 3.1, listen to what he says in his letter there to the Thessalonians, reflecting back on when he was in Athens. Therefore, he says, when we could endure it no longer, what could you not endure, Paul? We could not endure the thought that you Thessalonians um, had been undone in your faith. We could not bear the thought that perhaps our preaching to you proved in vain. We could not bear the thought that perhaps the evil one had come in to undo the good work that we believe was started there in Thessalonia. And so Paul is burdened uh, regarding his concern for them. He said, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Paul and Silas will send Timothy to Thessalonica. And then evidently Paul will send Silas back to Macedonia as well. Acts 18.5, just a little bit later. Uh, Acts 18.5 states that Silas and Timothy returned from Macedonia to meet up with Paul in Corinth. Corinth is the place Paul goes to right after Athens. It's about 55 miles southward. So Paul arrives in Athens. According to our text right now, he arrives in Athens. He is alone. And then he will later leave Athens for Corinth. Again, he will uh, arrive there alone as well. I just want you to think about where Paul is at when all of what we're about to see happens, okay? Um, It might be helpful to recall that in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, listen, he tells them that when he came to them, he goes to Corinth right after Athens. We're getting this bigger, broader perspective here. So in his letter to them, what does he say to them? So when I came to you, I came in weakness, And fear and much trembling. Commentators in putting the pieces together agree that Paul was dealing with discouragement. That he was on the verge of deep depression. Okay, so we can now place Paul's arrival in Athens in proper broader perspective Philippi persecution, Thessalonica persecution, Berea persecution. And now Paul finds himself in Athens. He is all alone. And the text says now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, again, he's alone. He is intensely burdened for the believers in Thessalonica. 
And it is no stretch to say that Paul was likely burdened for other churches as well, including Philippi and Berea. And such a burden, I believe, overshadowed his own personal sufferings for the sake of Christ. And the burden that Paul felt would only intensify while waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens. After all, Athens was a city filled with idols. Luke tells us that Paul's spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. For our purposes, simply note that Paul was beholding the city full of idols. It would not be a stretch to say that the typical person coming into Athens would be enamored, enamored by her architectural and artistic beauty, along with her intellectual achievements. So Paul enters the city and he observes that it is full of idols, some 30,000 idols, if you care to know. Uh, There were three times more idols than people in Athens. Uh, Pusanius once declared that in Athens, it is easier to meet a god or goddess than to meet a man. But was Paul impressed? Was he enamored by the afterglow that was once Athens? The afterglow of the glory that was once Athens. What effect does Paul's observation that the city was full of idols have on him? This takes us to observation two. Observation two. Paul's grief, his anger, if you will, over idolatry. Verse 16 tells us that his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. The word for provoke is parazunamai, parazunamai, and it carries the idea of being aroused to anger. It is an emotionally charged word. Paul was not merely intellectually uh, grieved and upset and angry, uh, he felt he felt the emotion. This is not a flying off the handle, sinful sort of anger. It was a righteous indignation. It was an anger under control, similar to when Jesus observed the money changers in the temple. And then the next day returns to the temple and he cleans house, declaring my house shall be called a house of prayer for all of the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. And you will recall the verse that says, zeal for my father's house will consume me. And that's what we saw from Christ. And we see a similar kind of zeal arising in the bosom of the apostle Paul. And so like Jesus, Paul feels uh, this 
righteous indignation, this anger, if you will. He is angry about the idolatry, angry about what the idolatry meant. People created in the image of God were exchanging the truth of God for a lie. They were deceived into worshiping things created rather than the creator. They were placing their hope and their trust in false gods. And Paul knew that such idolaters were doomed to destruction. They were in the domain of darkness and they were headed for an eternity in hell. And these realities helped to provoke him in the way that he is being provoked, as he is beholding the city full of idols. He does not just observe the idols, but he experiences emotion, uh, righteous indignation over the idolatry. I want to say that his anger is a complement to love. His anger is a complement to love. His love for the Lord is so strong that anything rising against such a beautiful being stirs within him a hatred. He hates idolatry. He hates sin. He hates to see idol worshipers heading to a hell where they will spend eternity in torment Uh, One cannot rightly love God without a corresponding hatred for that which rises up against such a beautiful being. John tells us, the Apostle John says, uh, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, he says, is not In him, again, love for the world violates love for God. And we, as God's people, must be stirred in our um, hatred for the sin and for the evil that is in the world. I submit to you that Paul's example is instructive uh, for us. It is instructive for us. I ask you, do you observe the idolatry that surrounds us today? And do you feel a holy, righteous indignation for all things that rise up against the knowledge of a holy God? I am in no way condoning. Listen, I am not condoning a man-centered, sinful anger rooted in personal offense. Such anger must always be forsaken. It is evil. There is never a place for such evil anger, but there is a righteous indignation that is appropriate and should stir our emotion and motivate us to action. But from where does such emotion derive? Paul, why are you this way? How can we cultivate in ourselves such an emotionally charged response to the idolatry of our day. And part of the answer is found in the body of Paul's sermon that he preaches beginning in verse 22. In his sermon on Mars Hill, 
Let me summarize. We're not there yet, but I'm getting ahead of myself. It's okay. In short, Paul has a very high view of God. He is awestruck by the glory and the majesty of Almighty God. He recognizes the transcendence of God and he is left breathless. Paul is also awestruck by the eminence of God. While it is true that God is infinitely high and holy and so far above and beyond us in the perfection of his being, he is also the God who is near and he beckons us to repent and embrace the one who has been raised bodily from the dead. At the very center of this emotion of Paul is his understanding, grasp, and experience of the love of Christ. When Paul encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, his entire paradigm changed. This proved to be the defining moment in Paul's life. Uh, It was when he met Jesus, when he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, that he began to grasp more than ever the compassion, mercy, and love of Almighty God. He understood what Christ accomplished for him at Calvary. He knew that God made him uh, who knew no sin to be sin for him so that in him he might be made the righteousness of God. He understood the wrath of a holy God was poured out upon his beloved son so that sinners such as himself might be saved and brought into fellowship with a holy God. Paul's fire was flamed by the love of God. And he says as much in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Pastor Mike alluded to it in the worship time where Paul declares that, that it is the love of Christ that controls us. The, the love of Christ constrains me. The reason why I do what I do and reach out to people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is because of the love of Almighty God poured out upon me through his son, Jesus Christ. The love of Christ compels me, he says. Paul prays uh, in Ephesians that the readers there might be able, he says, to comprehend uh, with all of the saints what is the breadth and the width and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Do you get a sense that Paul is enamored with the greatness of Almighty God? That he is awestruck by the reality of who his God is? And is it any wonder, being constrained by the love of Christ, that he would do what he does for the sake of the gospel? Again, he prays for them to know the immensity of the love of Christ so that they would be filled with God's fullness and thereby walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He knows, Paul knows, that an understanding and experience of the love of Christ is fuel for the believer's fire. And I ask you this morning, have you encountered Christ or has Christ encountered you? And I know 
that the vast majority of us have come to faith in Christ. And, and I am absolutely blessed and encouraged. You are my brothers and you are my sisters in Christ because of Christ. We are family. But I would be remiss if I were to think that everyone here is a brother of mine or a sister of mine. I know that there are some in here today who have yet to come to faith in Christ. And I implore you, I ask of you, give your heart to Christ. Give your heart to Christ. I hope that by the time this message is done, you will see sufficient reason as to why you should surrender everything over to the Lord. Do you understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? That Jesus died the death that you and I deserve to die. That, that the unbridled wrath of a holy God was poured out upon his blameless son for the purpose that you and I might have eternal life. Paul understood this and this is the reason he does what he does in surrendering his life and service to the Savior. And this is the reason that when he observes idolatry in Athens, he was provoked in his spirit. So what does Paul do next? How does he respond? What action does he take? This brings us to observation number three. Paul's confrontation of idolatry. Paul's confrontation of idolatry. His confrontation of idolatry in the Athenian culture is twofold. First, Paul confronts the idolatry with daily evangelism. Daily evangelism. Verse 17 says, So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Paul's response to the idolatry is emotionally charged and moves him to action. The fact that he is alone does not hinder him from engaging the culture in evangelism. The fact that he has already suffered for the cause of Christ does not proclaim, uh, prevent him from proclaiming Christ. Uh, he does not limit his evangelism to one particular location. He evangelizes in the synagogue as well as the marketplace. Uh, he does not limit his evangelism to any particular day of the week. The text tells us that he was reasoning every day. He does not limit his evangelism to one particular group of people. He spoke to religious folks as well as street variety pagans. Uh, he will also engage the intellectual philosopher types, as we will see in a few moments. Uh, there was no limit to the location, no limit to the day, and no limit to who he would evangelize. I am not telling you that each of us should evangelize everywhere, every day, or to every person. That's not what, what I'm trying to say. But I suspect if you are like me, most of us would agree 
that we should be evangelizing in more locations, more often, and to more people than we do. How shall they hear if one is not sent? How beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. I trust that our desire is for our feet to be beautiful. It does not hurt to look at the example of Paul and to follow him as he follows the Lord. I might also add that Paul was not engaging here in friendship evangelism, though such an approach is excellent, and I commend it, and I encourage it. We have seen people saved in this body through friendship evangelism, but here he's not engaging, if you will, in friendship evangelism. Uh, He is engaging in contact evangelism. These are strangers that he is sharing with. He does not know these people. Uh, He is meeting uh, many of these folks, all of these folks for the first time. And he is wasting little or no time in sharing the good news of Jesus with them. And so I ask, are you engaging others in gospel conversations when was the last time that you passionately proclaimed Christ to an unsaved soul when was the last time you stared at a spiritually dead person in the face and pleaded with him to come to Christ Luke goes on to say in verse 18 that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And so here he engages the philosopher types. Epicureans believed everything happens by chance. Death is the end. There is no afterlife. They believe in the gods, but say that those gods have nothing to do with the world. They were practical agnostics whose goal uh, included seeking pleasure And avoiding pain. That sounds very similar to the philosophies of this world in the day and age in which we live. Stoics are pantheists. God is everything and everything is God. They blur the distinction between the creator and the creation. They believe that everything um, happens to them. Everything that happens to them is their destiny. They tend to be emotionally apathetic detached and fatalistic their approach to life is to grin and bear it they saw self-mastery as the greatest virtue they believe that self-mastery comes from being indifferent to both pleasure and pain reaching the place where one feels nothing but as creatures created in the image of almighty god we are to feel it is appropriate that on the basis of truth our emotions are stirred
And so while the Epicureans and the Stoics Stoics differed considerably in their beliefs from one another, they were united in their contempt for Paul's teaching. Luke goes on to say, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Literally, they called Paul a seed picker. This is an insult. They likened Paul to a bird pecking indiscriminately at seeds. They saw Paul as one who picks up ideas from various sources, as one who was shallow in his thinking and having no real depth of understanding. They insult him. Luke next describes how others misrepresented what Paul was teaching. He says, others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Deities, that is plural, because he was preaching Jesus and he was preaching the resurrection. The Greek word for resurrection is anastasis, and commentators suggest that Paul was being accused of proclaiming two deities. They accused him of teaching Jesus and teaching anastasis. So he's being misunderstood, misrepresented. Needless to say, Paul is not achieving his desired results here. The so-called scholars of his day insult him. They misrepresent him. They do not embrace the truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I trust that you are not surprised when in your attempt to proclaim Christ, folks might mock what you believe. They may even misrepresent what you are saying, but that is no reason to shy away from proclaiming the truth of the gospel. In fact, such commitment may pave the way for greater opportunity. This is what happens to Paul. Read on verse 19. It says they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, to Mars Hill, if you will, where he is going to have an audience, where he is going to speak to the intelligentsia of the intelligentsia, the leading scholars of the day, the court, if you will, of the Areopagites. Um, And so they're going to bring him there saying, and and they're going to ask the question, um, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming? Uh, For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. There's no sincerity there. And I tried to give accent to that lack of sincerity Luke, parenthetically, in verse 21 says, Now now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They weren't necessarily sincerely interested in what Paul had to say. But they're going to put him on the spot and say, Speak to us, sir. And this takes us to another way in which Paul confronts the idolatry of his day. Paul confronts the idolatry, this is the second way, um, with evangelistic preaching. With evangelistic preaching. Luke goes on to describe Paul's sermon beginning in verse 22. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, 
men a respectful address men of athens i observe he takes notice of them and he is about to pay a modified compliment if you will i observe that you are very religious in all respects looking for this point of contact here For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, he's not demeaning or ridiculing or scorning or putting them down for their idolatry. He's just acknowledging, right? He's acknowledging the objects of their worship. He says, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. You can bet your bottom dollar that when Paul first saw that, he thought to himself, I have an idea. This, this can be useful. And here he is using it. To an unknown God, what therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Paul could have immediately addressed their idolatry. He could have said, You are all idol worshipers and you are headed to hell unless you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. Sure, Paul has observed the idolatry. He is provoked to confront it, but he employs a tactful and a respectful approach, a loving approach, if you will. He affirms they are religious people. He affirms that they are, in fact, worshipers. And he sets the stage so that they learn about the only one worthy of worship. In short, he begins with a respectful approach. And he also looks for common ground. He finds something in their culture that they embrace in an effort to bridge the gap between where they are and where he wants to bring them. In referring to the altar to an unknown God, he shows that he has paid attention to them. He knows they affirm a God who they know nothing about. So Paul tells them that he wants to introduce them to the unknown God whom they in ignorance worship. What follows is a breathtaking, a breathtaking and compelling presentation of the God who is worthy of worship. Paul will present to his audience a magnificent portrait of the one that they should idolize listen to the points of paul's sermon as he presents the truth about the unknown god point number one and we're going to move through this briskly but just try to soak it in as we move along number one god is the creator verse 24 paul says the it's luke saying it but he's quoting paul so paul said it the god who made the world and all things in it that is the starting point 
You'll notice he's not going after them from the starting point of Scripture per se, though he is starting from a biblical mindset. He's not opening up special revelation and jamming Scripture down their throat. That's not what he's doing. He's, he's trying to you know, appeal from natural revelation from creation. He's going to come from this angle and he's going to present to them truth about this God that is evident to them. Okay, he says the God who made the world and all things in it immediately he establishes the creator creature distinction. There is a distinction. This this is going to uh, speak against a pantheistic worldview. There is a distinction. God is not all and all is not God. No, there is a distinction. This is the God who created all things. Point number two, God is the Lord. He is, he says, since he is Lord of heaven and earth and a Lord is the rightful owner of his domain and God is the rightful owner. He is the Lord of all things created, both the heavens and the earth. This harkens us back to Genesis where in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God is the one that gave the marching orders. And God is the one who told us how we are to live our lives before him. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Point three, God cannot be confined to any one location. In other words, he is immense. Notice that he says that he does not dwell in temples made with hands. You cannot contain him in the works that your own hands have made. He reaches beyond all of these things. He reaches beyond the entire cosmos. He is the great God, the creator and the Lord and the one who cannot be contained. He is immense. Point number four. He is self-sufficient. He is self-sufficient. He goes on to say, neither is God served by human hands as though he needed anything. You see, God is self-sufficient. God was not up there in the heavens and at some point says, oh, I know what I'll do. I'm feeling lonely. I'm going to make people. Because I need to have a companionship with people. He's perfectly self-sufficient, perfectly content in his being. The members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were fine in eternity past. They did not need you and they did not need me. He did not need you. He did not need me. Totally self-sufficient. There is nothing that we can do to add to his glory. To add to his perfection of being. Now we can glorify him, right? We can as we reflect his image and as we act in a way that reflects who he is. There's that sense in which God is glorified. But we cannot add to his glory. His glory is infinite despite ourselves. But it is a wonder to think that he invites us to join him in his glory. And he says, I want you as my image bearers to reflect my glory as you relate one to another. Point number five. God is the giver of life and all things. Since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. 
This in and of itself should cause us to stop and to give thanks that he is a giving God. Point six, God is sovereign. He is sovereign over the rise and the fall of nations. Verse 26 says, and he made from one, meaning made from Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth. Remember the original intent. The whole earth will be filled with my glory. In other words, the whole earth will be filled with my image bearers who glorify me in the relationships one with another. Every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth. But, you know, the fall messed it all up. But he goes on to say, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So so the point being is God is sovereign um, over the rise and the fall of nations. Number six, God desires that men seek and find him that this is his purpose for us, that they that we should seek God. If perhaps they we might grope for him and find him. He desires that man would seek and to find him. How kind of God is that to have that desire in his heart to say, I want you to seek and to find me. And you know what? He is not this being. He was so far transcendent to where we have to reach out as far as we can in a feeble attempt to reach him. Listen to point number six. God is near. He says, though he is not far from each of us, he is not far from each and every single one of us. Where is God? I can't find God. He is not far from each and every single one of us. Point seven, God created us to be dependent upon him. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. I'm going to move on in the interest of time. Number eight, God is unlike anything our hands can make. Being then the offspring of God, we are his offspring. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. It's foolish for us to think that God is like anything that our hands can make. He, he is not like anything that our hands can make. Moving on, number nine, we should turn from our idolatry. Verse 30 says, therefore, God, having overlooked the times of ignorance, he is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Repent of your idolatry. Turn from your sin. The unsaved man should repent of idolatry and and. And the God that he was created for to worship, he should worship. He should turn to him. And if the greatness of almighty God is not enough for man to turn to him, Paul is going to provide another motivation. Number 10, God will judge the world in righteousness. There is no escaping the judgment of almighty God apart from putting our faith in Christ and him being judged in our place, right? He says in verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. That's Christ having furnished proof, proof of his righteous judgment, proof that he will judge the world according to righteousness 
having furnished proof to all men by raising Christ from the dead. Jesus is the man through whom God will judge. And we know God's judgment is righteous because he dealt righteously with Jesus by raising him from the dead. Remember, Jesus was sinless, but he took our sin upon his back and he died for us, the innocent for the guilty. But God is a righteous judge and concluded that his innocent son would and in fact should rise from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is proof that God is a righteous judge and he will judge us according to his righteousness as well. What is fair? What would be appropriate? Is it fair that we sinful fallen idolaters, that we are judged and condemned to hell? Yes, it is fair. But the good news is that Christ was condemned in our place when he hung on the cross. Our only hope is to embrace the one who was punished in our place. Well, what a sermon from a man suffering from weakness, fear and trembling. What was the response? Let's hear from Luke 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, from the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Today, We have journeyed with Paul on the second mission trip. Let us be reminded that his service to the Lord was marked by a sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He was persecuted, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Then he arrives in Athens alone, while there burdened by an intense concern for the well-being of the Thessalonians and the other churches. He is concerned that the evil one has undermined his work in Thessalonica and the other churches. It's no stretch to say that he shared a similar concern for all of the believers. And Paul is alone when he first arrives in Athens. He's burdened, finds himself in a city full of idols. And this provokes Paul. His emotions are stirred as he feels a righteous indignation being provoked in his heart. Such emotion serves as fuel for Paul confronting the culture. He cannot contain himself. He engages daily in personal evangelism, uh, but he is demeaned and misrepresented. And he engages as well in evangelistic preaching. People sneered at him. Uh, There is some measure of hope as a few did come to faith in Christ. He moves on from Athens alone again, makes the 55-mile hike to Corinth. It is difficult for us to appreciate the physical and emotional toll that such a venture has had on Paul. We know that he came to the Corinthians in weakness, fear, and much trembling. It is within this context that we must appreciate this man's courage. 
and his commitment to the proclamation of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let us resolve in following Paul's example. Let us take note of and observe the fact that we live in an idolatrous age. And let us be provoked by the idolatry that surrounds us. And let us confront such idolatry with a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me also add that this sermon would fall woefully short if I failed to remind us all that Almighty God observed the idolatry in our own lives. He hated the idolatry that he saw. It grieved him. Yet he loved us as well. Our idolatry provoked God's anger, but it provoked his love as well. God sent his son. Jesus willingly stepped down from heaven, entered this wicked world, lived a perfect life, and he died on a cross in our place. While hanging there on the cross, having been beaten beyond recognition with a crown of long, sharp thorns pressing into his brow, the Lord Jesus took upon himself the full fury of God's unmitigated wrath. He was punished in our place. I ask you then, brothers and sisters, ought we not to hate sin, to hate evil, and to hate idolatry. Let our application of this sermon begin with us identifying the idolatry in our own hearts and lives. Whenever we place our own interest and our own desires above that of the Lord, we become guilty of a form of idolatry. At the heart of heart, idolatry is living for self rather than living for the Savior. Any sin that we commit is a sign that we have crossed the line and have become guilty of heart idolatry. When I become angry at my wife because she fails to give to me what I want, I have become guilty of heart idolatry. I have elevated self above my wife in direct violation of the teaching of God's word. And more importantly, I have elevated self above almighty God himself. Let us be provoked by such idolatry. Let us be stirred to anger and let us confront such idolatry, the idolatry in our own lives with a proclamation of the gospel to ourselves. Let us remember that our heart idolatry, our sin, our pride, our self-exaltation is the very reason that Jesus was crucified on a cross and with him we too have been crucified. 
Paul reminds us of this very truth when he declares in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And then, having done business with self, having cast out the idols within by the grace of God and through the power of the gospel. And then let us observe the idolatry in our culture and let us be provoked. Let us be stirred to a righteous anger and a holy hatred of every form of idol that rises up against the Lord And let us confront lost and dying people with a vision of the one that they should idolize. Let us proclaim Christ to our dying breath and throughout all eternity to him and to him alone be glory in the church both now and forever. Would you please pray with me? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, We come before you, Lord, without many words. Our mouths are silent before your greatness, O God. We confess, Lord, the idolatry in our own heart. And we also observe the evil that does exist in this world in which we live. We ask, Lord, for cleansing, forgiveness, that, Lord, you might help us to behold Christ. And like Paul, when we see the evil, the idolatry, that we are moved. And that, Lord, we, by your grace and by your power, by your enablement, that we would seize every opportunity to proclaim Christ. Let us proclaim Christ to ourselves, to one another, and to a lost and dying world. Lord, now as we Give to you a small portion of what we have 
we pray that you would use it for the advancement of your kingdom. Thank you for your provision, Lord. Thank you for your kindness to us. And Lord, let us grow in our giving to you all things. Give grace. Help us, Jesus. Thank you, Lamb, for your death for us. We surrender ourselves to you and lay ourselves at your throne. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.